You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. Hey everybody, I'm starting off, I'm taking us back to uh, the year 1848, and American naturalist Thaddeus William Harris was living in Massachusetts. Now, he was no slouch. He graduated from Harvard in 1820. He founded the Harvard Natural History Society. He elected a, was elected a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1827. He was made the librarian of Harvard in 1831. Uh, in 1837, he was appointed uh, one of the commissioners for a zoological and botanical survey of Massachusetts. Uh, and in 1841, he published the first edition of the Report on the Insects of Massachusetts, Injurious, injurious to vegetation <laughs> uh, so he's a pretty busy guy yeah. i think it's fair to say i would uh, say but i did so. mention yeah you know and into insects it should be noted uh i mentioned at the beginning though the year 1848 so supposedly uh i've seen stories that in that year he was at home with one of his you ready for this 12 children <laughs> <laughs> Let that Absolutely sink in, especially not. especially you, Victoria, while your children are screaming in the background. Yeah. Uh, imagine if you had 12. No. So he was <laughs> hanging out in the garden with one of those 12 uh, when suddenly uh, his three young three-year-old child um, started to cry. And this uh, Thaddeus William Harris realizes that his child was crying because he had picked up a caterpillar. Oh, now, for many parents, they would just sue their child and move along. But when you're a naturalist who literally helped write the book on insects you in your state. you got to check out that caterpillar, first of all. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Stop, do some investigation. What caused the situation? Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I really, really hate on this podcast to use the word discovered when it comes to a species. Because what it implies is that... That's, that species don't exist until some white dude writes about them, right? right. That's pretty insulting. Mm-hmm. So what I, what I can say is that the species we're talking about was first studied and formally described by Harris after it caused his child to cry. So what had shown up in their garden came to be called the dagger moth, uh, which I think has the coolest name, and I, I will admit. I uh, like that a lot. <laughs> Part of why I picked this topic is just because the name is really, really cool. Did that uh, with sarcastic fringe fish. No judgment. Yeah. So it's a really cool name for a pretty boring looking moth. I did not even bother to send you a picture. Uh, the first description I read of this moth, though, I was pretty insulted. as It said that it was like unattractive and unlovable creature or something to that effect. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's rude. The person who wrote this, very rude. Certainly... Must not like moths and insects because they're all super, like, cool and fascinating. And this person must be really biased. Yeah. And then, uh, well, <laughs> then I looked at a picture. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. I have to now agree I have there. To Google this. <laughs> they're exceptionally yeah. dull. Go ahead, Google it if you want. It's stagger moth. Uh-huh. There's some shades of brown. Uh, there's really nothing much remarkable about the adults. 
Okay, but I'm not talking about the adults today. So what isn't oh, dull to me I'm is sure the I've seen those. Yeah, yeah, is the larval stage. Oh, very fuzzy. All members, yeah, they are fuzzy. And all members of the Lepidopter order, that's moths and butterflies, start out as caterpillars. So Rachel talked about caterpillar metamorphosis back in episode 21. Yeah. So go check that out. Uh, but the basic fact is that caterpillars undergo what is called complete metamorphosis, meaning they completely change their physical appearance. Uh, appearance? Is that what I said? <laughs> Probably. Their physical appearance. <laughs> Uh, so that the larva or the, you know, the caterpillar of the dagger moth looks very different, in fact, completely different from the adult moth, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I said I decided to do this story because of the name, but really, uh, back to the end of July, I taught an insect bioblitz summer camp. I spent oh, yeah. four days looking for every possible insect that I could find with a group of middle schoolers. And we ended up identifying in four days... Uh, 128 species of insects. That's awesome. Really one of them, yeah, it was so fun. Uh, and one of them was the dagger moth, right? We found the um, the uh, the larval stage, the caterpillar. And guess what happened? Ooh, did someone start crying? Did it pupate? Uh, no, no, no one started crying. But one of the kids was like, "Oh, my hand like really itches," right? Oh. And so we. Looked up, and that's where I found out that this is actually one of the founding stories of the dagger moth is a child picked it up and started to itch. So uh, what happens when you pick them up, to be clear, is not a sting or a bite. They have no venom. They do not have stingers. They do not bite. So but it might mm. help describe what they looked like. And you already kind of hinted at this. Uh, but a dagger moth is a dagger moth caterpillar. It's about the size of like a woolly bear caterpillar. If you've ever seen those, a lot of people are familiar with this, the common brown and black kind of hairy caterpillars that mm -hmm. show up. They're like uh, about an inch and a half or so. Yeah, about an inch and a half long. The woolly bear caterpillar turns into the Isabella moth, which is terribly confusing and a great example of why common names are terrible. The dagger moth caterpillar turns into the dagger moth. See how that works? Beautiful. Yes. No name change. That's how things should work. <laughs> but they don't. Uh, like the woolly bear, uh, the dagger moth is covered in hundreds of tiny hairs. And they are um, mostly sort of a, a light yellow color with uh, several slightly longer black hairs sticking out. Okay. And the hairs are the cause of this stinging sensation. Now, many listeners have likely picked up a woolly bear caterpillar and had no problems. Their hairs don't seem to irritate humans. But... The hairs are there as a defense mechanism because they are extremely irritating when ingested, which mm -hmm. we usually don't do. But if you're a bird eating caterpillars and you're eating hairy caterpillars, all those hairs breaking off in your esophagus is extremely uncomfortable. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, so the hairs in the dagger moth and many other moths, for that matter, can sometimes cause skin irritation, especially in sensitive people. And every once in a while, there's like a viral social media report, like warning parents against, don't let your children play outside. These highly dangerous stinging caterpillars have been spotted in your area. <laughs> it's like, oh, come on. Like, I mean, actually, my, years ago, my wife showed me one of these on like Facebook and was like, have you heard about this new caterpillar? And it's like, they're not new and they're not dangerous. It's uh, yeah, the truth is you can let a dagger moth crawl around on your hand as much as you like, and you have essentially no chance of being uh, irritated okay. by the hairs on there. 
The issue, if there is one at all, is when people squeeze them or cup them tightly in their hands, like children often do. Right. Um, or in the case of probably my camper, they like to use their fingers to pull it out of a net, like a sweep net. Uh-huh. And then oh. they were, you know, they squeezed they, they, it some yeah. and, and then their fingers were itching a bunch. So, you know, it, it, it can happen. Have no fear, though. It's usually just a passing annoyance and not a cause for major panic. The scientific name for hairs like this is uricating hairs, mm-hmm. uh, and there are some that are more dangerous than those that are found on your common backyard dagger moth, okay. all right? Now, as you can imagine, having something or many somethings stuck into your skin can either be annoying uh, and irritating or downright painful, right? Just they can be especially tro- Yeah. They can be especially troublesome if they break off or if they get inhaled, or into your eyes. Because sometimes you get animals where they break off very easily, and they're very light and can get airborne. It can get in your eyes. No! Can you imagine that? That sounds extraordinarily painful. Now, I'm going to take a little bit of a left turn here. You know the stingers on stinging nettle? Yeah. You know, I was thinking about stinging nettle when you were describing the effects of this, uh, this caterpillar. I, I was excellent because those are also cactus. an example of 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 uricating hairs. Okay, uh, and they are they're not hairs. None of these are actual hair. Right, I want to point out they're yeah. not actual because none of these are from mammals. And yeah, mm-hmm. um, but basically the hairs on nettles are actually hollow and function like hypodermic needles. They inject an irritating chemical into your skin. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine what it would be like if the caterpillar had hairs that were like hypernervous needles <laughs> and could also inject like poison or venom into you? Mm. Absolutely not. Yeah, I can imagine it. Well, <laughs> Rachel? My eyes got real big. Rachel? What? Victoria can imagine it. And you better start imagining it. Why should I start imagining it, Kirk? Why can it? Why? Well, because uh, there are a few species of caterpillar that do indeed have hollow hairs and they do inject venom into animals when they are disturbed. Oh, no. So according to one report I read, um, some of these venoms can even cause tissue necrosis, <gasps> meaning tissue death, Ooh. for where you got, uh, where you touched it. There's uh, a really which is bad one in Central America, isn't there somewhere? I feel like oh, uh, we're, get, we're getting there. <laughs> yeah. uh, so tissue necrosis would be, would be bad enough. But uh, a very famous example is the giant silkworm moth. Though I do want to point out that's a common name that applies to a number of different individual species. Mm -hmm. So these caterpillars are found in South America in areas like Brazil. And an encounter is typically the result of someone like carelessly leaning against a tree and accidentally pressing up against like a whole group of caterpillars. Mm -hmm. Not just one. (laughs) And they're very camouflaged. So I'm just going to lean against this tree and all of a sudden it's like you squish like a whole group of them and you become envenomated, which is the term. Oh, Uh, no. The effects of the venom are, oh man, it's pretty awful. Uh, they include massive internal bleeding, Ooh. followed by kidney failure and uh, hemolysis, sounds very I believe fatal. is the term, uh, which is the rupturing of blood cells, Ooh. which, Victoria got it right, can be fatal. That's uh, death not good. Uh, no, no, I, I would tend to agree. De- death can either occur the same day or days later, uh, either of which sounds horrifying. That sounds I will say, terrible. It is, it is not always fatal. 
obviously depends on like medical care, how many you touch, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but on each year, on average, there's about one person who dies uh, from an encounter uh, with these caterpillars. So if you do have a run-in with a dagger moth or one of the other like slightly irritating species found in North America, uh, consider yourself lucky. Uh, they're really cool looking animals and they don't really hurt you. Uh, but just be glad, I guess, you did not have a run-in with the venomous giant silkworm moth instead. I would I say thankful. so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to think about this for a while now. Thank you. <laughs> Awesome. Well, enjoy. We're going to go to a break. When we come back, Rachel, it's your turn. Kirk here with a quick note. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It helps other lovers of The Strange find our show. You can also find and follow us on social media. Search for Strange by Nature Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or come visit us at strangebynaturepodcast.com. We'll see you there. Now, back to the show. All righty, everyone. We are back. Yes, we are. All right. This week, what I'm going to be talking about is the hydropotes in Nermis, <laughs> also known as the water deer. I probably said it wrong. Please let water deer. Water All right, deer. I'm. I'm water. Deer. I'm. Oh dear. I'm in. <gasps> yeah, I've. I've not heard of this. Ooh. I don't think I have. You probably have. It has another common name that I'll get to later. Okay. Okay. Uh, you. You are obfuscating. The, uh, the names moose? here on purpose. No, it is not I, know moose. The, I know the Latin name of that. It's not what it's, you just said. No. <laughs> no, it's not Elsie's Elsie's. Elsie's Yeah. Um, so there are, I'm so excited. Okay. So there are two species of the water deer. Um, okay. There's the Chinese water deer and there's the Korean water deer. Okay. Okay. Um, it was first gotcha. described to the Western world by Robert Swinhoe in 1870. Um, and this mammal actually was thought to be a musk deer for certain reasons that we'll get into in a little bit, but it's actually part of the true deer family. It's, uh, it is a cervid. It's in part oh, of cervidae. Okay. Cervidae, yeah. Um, so it's found in the coastal regions of the Jiangsu, um, the Yangtze River, the uh, Zhejiang uh, of China, and the demilitarized zone of Korea. Okay. So okay. of those species, the right. China ones, and the, there's the China bit, and then there is the de- demilitarized zone of Korea. The ones in China are actually more uh, threatened and actually critically endangered. <laughs> but the Korean uh, water deer <laughs> yeah. is... DMZ actually great for wildlife. Yeah. It's yeah, it turns out. for... They're doing turns just out keeping fine. people out everywhere. Yeah. Um, it's generally found as its name might imply. It is generally found alongside rivers. Uh, it loves marshes and swamp as habitat. Um, you'll never guess, but they are great swimmers. (laughs) They are. Oh, shocking. Who would have guessed? Uh, they are capable of swimming several miles to different isolated islands. Okay. Uh, not, not that unusual for the deer family. No, not very unusual. Uh, they can be found on mountains and grasslands. Um, they're also, uh, there's also, uh, on a different side note, 
a sizable population, uh, somewhere around 600 in a town or area called Whipsnade in Great Britain, where uh, this right. particular deer... Wait, what? The, it, there's a sizable population of... Imported, okay. I'm going to guess. Imported. This was... This story just took a major left-hand turn that yeah. I was not prepared for. <laughs> There's a sizable population, about a little... Yeah, when she said which state, I'm like, well, she's probably pronouncing that wrong. No, uh, <laughs> around 600 or more, actually, uh, in Whipsnade in Great Britain. Britain. There's actually okay. uh, more where this year was introduced in the 1870s to the London Zoo. And then some... Fancy board or whatever got really interested and transferred them to another, like his estate or something like that. And it, uh -huh. from the London Zoo in like 1986. And so there were escapees. And now there is just a stable population uh, <laughs> just hanging out. In oh, of course Britain. there is. Of course there uh, is. Of course there is. Yeah. Um, now these deer are about 3.3 feet tall at the shoulder. Uh, so I little. am. They're pretty little. They're really small. They have a longer neck, uh, but I wasn't able to get like their exact um, height, including the neck. I am taller than them, though. I will. I will take that. Yeah, that's a really, really common thing for animals. They measure like they measure, they at measure the shoulder. The, for yeah. the shoulder and don't include the the total height. Which I've. I think we talked about this when we talked about moose. Yeah, it's such a strange. Mm -hmm. Strange deal. It's. I think I it comes from how we measure horse because that's the that's how the biologists do. Mm -hmm. Um, they're anywhere from twenty to thirty-one pounds. So these are really small little deer. Aww. Okay. Pocket deer, almost. Yeah, and generally speaking, they look kind of cute. Um, they have really long legs uh, and a somewhat long neck, and their hind legs are actually longer than their front legs. So when they run, they actually. Uh, run with like little rabbit like jumps which is really is there, cute is there a butt is there a butt i sort of feel this? like rachel's gonna reveal that they suck blood or right something really disturbing like they're really cute but i'm gonna harken back to victoria's comment in a minute um so <laughs> wow okay all right for reasons for reasons you have um, my attention <laughs> So they also have an inguinal gland that they use for scent marking around their um, groin area, which is actually very interesting because no other cervidae has that. These deer huh. also do not ever grow antlers. They don't grow antlers. That's not a thing, oh, which is also okay. strange. Um, generally speaking, they're like a golden brown color with a white underneath with little rounded ears. They look really cute and adorable. Oh, um, but... Vampire deer? <laughs> but what makes these deer especially strange is what drives this more common name, which could be uh, one of two, the vampire deer. Really? No! Really? <laughs> <laughs> or the fangs deer. I didn't Google this. <laughs> I am dead serious. Fangs deer. Wait, what's deer? the second one? Fangs deer. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Oh uh, it's there. I feel like I feel like I've seen a picture of a little deer with like big. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a real. Teeth. That's a real picture. Yeah. So yeah. the buck's canine teeth. Okay, these little cute little deer. Mm -hmm. The buck's canine teeth can grow to be anywhere from 2.2 to 
one inches long. <laughs> Let the record show that when she said that, Rachel was holding her fingers about eight inches apart. At least yeah. five. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's about that far. But like on a little tiny okay. deer, uh, right. that's, in, that's really weird. Um, See, now I would have gone with like saber-toothed deer. Right, right. You know, that they, sounds pretty weird. The thing wicked. is, they look like fangs. Sure. Yes. Um, and they do protrude from the upper jaw of the deer. Obviously, you can't hold that in your mouth very easily. But I'm I'm gonna go on a limb and say that I'm gonna assume, based on my basic understanding of you know mammalian uh, morphology, that they are not hollow and used for sucking blood. They are not. No, they do not suck blood. Right. They don't do any of oh, that. That's disappointing. That I know Victoria is so disappointed right now. I, I'm gonna say wah, another thing wah. that is very sad as well the the does of the their their canine teeth are only about 0.2 inches long so they're also very short which is disappointing Whiff. um however <sighs> ladies gotta step up their game i know um or at least the deer do um but the reason why uh, they have these little these tusks oh. okay hey i'm i'm yes. moving past that okay the reason why these deer have these tusks, okay, have these um, mm -hmm. teeth, is actually kind of interesting. They're super territorial. So it is a way for them to fight or and to show dominance, but it's also a mating thing uh, for them. Um, when they have, they're also able to draw them backwards because they are herbivores. They're not meat suckers or anything like that so they can control mm -hmm. these teeth in their uh with their um facial muscles and they can draw okay. them backwards out of the way while they're eating they're hinged fangs wow that's sort of. that's really cool that so they're really like cool. super loose in the socket so they're still in there but they're able to control it with their facial muscles which is Weird. super fascinating um yeah, so generally speaking, they thrust them forward a bit when it, they're in aggressive encounters, um, and just the teeth in general is why I wanted to talk about <laughs> these particular uh, deer. They, it's mainly the males that have these really large canines. Um, the longer the canine you have, the more attractive you are to potential females. Um, right. And they are actually able to use like a, a clicking sound, uh, which potentially is made with those canines as well as their teeth. That's really kind of unknown how they make those particular um, sounds. Noises. Uh, noises, yeah. Um, that's pretty much all I have for you both actually today. I just wanted to talk about this really strange fanged deer. <laughs> Wow. Because you don't picture I, I so, I so wish you had done this story last week when I was talking about blood-sucking mosquitoes. It would have lined up so nicely. It, it would have, <laughs> but I saved it for this week. Oh, good. And that's what I have for you both today. So I think we're going to go to a break. And when we come back, it'll be Victoria. And we're back. Um, I also just want to acknowledge before I begin that uh, if you've been listening to our podcast, you 
probably heard my children in the background at some point. <laughs> I have two and a half year old twins and not a really good place to record in my household. Uh, so they are loud. Um, and that happens. So they add to the ambiance. Yes. I like your children. They're so cute. I like them too, except when I'm trying to report, record a podcast. <laughs> there is that. Yeah. Fair. All right. To move on. Today's topic, Today's infanticide. Topic. <laughs> oh my God. I, think I already Kurt. did that, didn't I? No. <laughs> yeah, you kind of did, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Wonder I think we know I where she got idea. the idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the podcast just got real, real dark. dark. <laughs> You're welcome. We're gonna we're gonna take a turn away from the, the biological world, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and I took are. I took an intro to geology class in my senior year of college. I love geology. I Yay. loved it too. Uh, that topic rocks. Thanks, Kirk. That was oh, really necessary, I'm sure. <laughs> Look, I'm a dad. It's, I can't help it. I mean, you know. That's that's fair. It was right there. It was low-hanging fruit. Yeah, that's my truly. son you can hear right now. <sighs> Very upset about something. I love, I, love how, I love how they were quiet when you were talking about how loud they are, and then when you start talking about your topic, they just launch right in. Yeah. It's truly um, beautiful. Anyway, geology. I loved it. Possibly if I had taken it freshman year, I would have wound up a geology major. But, um, of course, one of the things you learn about in Intro to Geology is earthquakes. Yeah. Yeah. And our professor showed us a film that I still remember today. It was made in 1971. So, you know, the look and feel was a bit dated by the time I saw it in the early aughts. Um, But it was well made, and it made a big impression on me. The title? San Francisco. The city that waits to die. Oh wow! That's yeah. so dark. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, basically, the film calls out the stupidity of development patterns in San Francisco, given the inevitability of major earthquakes in the area. Hi, and in Jordan. fact, I yeah. Well, I, I think the film actually had some influence on improving building codes in California. Good. Um, right. I bring this film up partly because the title is so memorable, but also because I remember my geology professor uh, talking about which U.S. city would now be the most likely to take the title of the city that waits to die. A couple of his suggestions, as I recall them. Seattle, the city that waits to die. Uh, For a slightly different reason, but yeah. (laughs) yeah. (laughs) St. Louis, the city that waits to die. All right. So some of you listeners, and maybe Kirk and Rachel, I don't know, we're probably nodding along with me until that last one, right? Yeah. Most people know that the West Coast is part of the Pacific Ring of Fire, Earthquake, and Volcano Zone. And, you know, Seattle has... If Rainier blows, Seattle's gone. Yeah. Mount Rainier is right outside (laughs) Seattle, and um, that's going to be problematic when that happens. Yep. But might have been a record scratch for you when I said St. Louis. Okay. Is that anywhere near the town of New Madrid? Well, depends what you mean by near, but this is where I am going, Kirk. Yes. Awesome. It, I think a I know where ge- you're going, but yeah, keep going. Yeah. A little geological history lesson. From December 1811 through February 1812, the area around New Madrid, which, by the way, is spelled Madrid, but pronounced Madrid. <laughs> right. But of course we pronounce it Madrid. Yeah. yeah. New Madrid, That's Missouri. infuriating. <laughs> Um, tell that to the folks in Montevideo, Minnesota. 
Anyway. Or in Pierre out in the Dakotas. Yeah. Or Cairo, yeah. Illinois. Yeah. There's a whole list. All right, anyways. New Madrid, Missouri. So they suffered a series of devastating earthquakes. This area is uh, near the border of Missouri, Arkansas, Tennessee, Kentucky, and Illinois. So a lot of states come together right there. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. white, white people had only um, sparsely settled this area at the time, and it was about 160 miles from St. Louis, is, I should say, 130 miles from Memphis, and about 200 miles from Nashville. So just to, to give you a little bit of a sense. So at the time, okay. this was the extreme western frontier of U.S. territory. Um, and so, you know, the white folks are mainly the source of written eyewitness accounts that we have. Um, mm-hmm. I'm sure okay. there were lots of Native people living in the area at the time, too, but we didn't get their side of the story. No one asked them, unfortunately. A shocker. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Right. Um, so these were... M- massive, massive quakes. Um, they caused the banks of the Mississippi River to collapse in some places. Uh, in some places, they made the river Whoa. run backwards temporarily. Oh, That's wow. crazy. Buildings were damaged in St. Louis and Cincinnati. This is like more than 100 miles away. So based on the contemporary descriptions of the damage and you know subsequent geological research about uh, evidence um, mm-hmm. of these quakes... They've yep. estimated that the magnitude ranged from um, seven up to as high as eight point six for the last and strongest earthquake. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh. <laughs> and that's that's a logarithmic scale for those playing at home. Uh-huh. Uh, the difference between seven and eight pretty, is not one. It is not pretty no. effing strong. Yeah. Um, wow. In fact, um, this is the these are the second strongest estimated earthquakes in the lower forty eight states. Oof. Yeah, that will break your China. Uh, Indeed. Yeah, yeah, it will. Also, hold on. This is in a landlock, not. We're getting there. Oh, good. Yes, I think Rachel has right discovered questions. the crux of. <laughs> yes, I mean I've of heard topic, of this, so I know, but it's still very much. It is nowhere near a fault line. <laughs> you don't see it coming. Yeah, literally. Another another interesting factor is that due to differences in the underlying rocks in the east versus the west of North America, earthquake shocks in the east travel a really long way, much farther than on the west mm-hmm. coast. So these 1811, 1812 earthquakes were felt as far away as Hartford, New Orleans, and Charleston. <gasps> so from Madrid to Hartford is like a thousand miles, about the same distance as San Francisco to Phoenix. So just let that sink in for a moment. Mm-hmm. My jaw is on the floor. <laughs> now, uh, getting back to what Rachel just alluded to, if you know the basics of plate tectonics, you might be wondering about these quakes because most earthquakes occur at the edges of a tectonic plate where they interact with other plates. Right, like the Ring and of Fire. Missouri like you were is about. right in the middle right. of a North American plate. <laughs> it's very far away from any boundary. So, yeah, <laughs> these, they call these intraplate earthquakes. They're pretty rare. Um, and they are not well understood uh, in terms of what causes them or how frequently they're likely to reoccur. Oh, uh, I'm not going to enlighten you scientifically very much because basically the geologists don't know. But one hypothesis is that um, long ago, the North American plate started to rift in this spot. But eventually hmm. the rifting stopped and it kind of left a right. weak spot. So that's one possibility. Okay. The geological record does show large quakes in the area in uh, 1450, 
900 and 300 uh, CE. Mm-hmm. And there's some evidence for large quakes before that in sort of other nearby seismic zones dating back as far as 4800 BCE. Okay. Uh, and okay. since 1812, there have been a few largish quakes in the New Madrid seismic zone. The largest, excuse me, was in 1895 uh, with an estimated magnitude of 6.6, which is it's pretty big. That's large, yeah. Yeah. Since seismic monitoring equipment was installed nearby in 1974, there have been about 4,000 earthquakes in the area, but most have been too small to feel. And there's about one earthquake per year large enough for folks to feel. So the, the upshot of this is some scientists think we might expect another large earthquake there, and some scientists think that the the fault is basically kind of just slowed down. That was, that was it. Yeah. yeah. And we don't know. But you can bet that um, building codes in Nashville and, uh, and St. Louis prepared. are not up to California standards. <laughs> no. So if not it does happen, that's going to be real bad. No one has Local earthquake bad. insurance in Nashville. When... When have humans ever been overly confident and end up surprised by nature? <laughs> Do you want chronological? Oh, right, all the time. All the time, right, all the time, okay. Yeah, I mean, look at how many times we have had massive fires in a city and then built the city back up in the same way, only for it to mm-hmm. burn or down. Or floods, for again. example. Or floods. Mm-hmm. Floods. Yeah. Or earthquakes. Earthquakes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or tsunamis. Or volcanic explosions. Is Tornadoes. It, we have very, very short memory. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. Look at this go. So, who knows? That's <laughs> fascinating, happen, though. It's really um, intre- interesting. It is. Yeah. Minnesota, though, is one of the most geologically stable areas of the country, so we got that going for us. But even here, we have had recorded earthquakes. Mm-hmm. What? Just a, a total random... Oh, yeah. Out of the, look it up. There's just random earthquakes out of nowhere, like a usually about a magnitude like 3.0 somewhere around there with some of the, one of the bigger ones. And it's just like what, what, why, what? Very strange. Very bizarre. Ugh. Well, let's just hope no one starts fracking uh, down by that fault line and lubricating up that fault real well with some fracking <sighs> uh, fluid. They're probably doing and, that already, uh, aren't they? I'm probably sure look they that are. up. Probably. Uh, maybe I can make an addendum. Well, if anything happens, yeah, we'll talk about it here on the show. There we go. And everyone will be like, wow, what a timely topic. Beautiful. All right. Well, thanks, Victoria. Well, great talking to you. You're welcome. Yeah, great talking to everyone. Thanks for some fascinating, strange topics. Talk to you next week. Next week, everyone. Bye-bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of The Strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace The Strange.